Welcome to Growing Up Skywalker. I'm Sam. Hi, I'm Anna. And today, for our 72nd episode, we are going back to where it all began for us in The Phantom Menace. Back in black, hit the sack. <laughs> I don't know the rest of the lyrics. <laughs> yes, we're rewatching The Phantom Menace, and I have set myself a challenge, Sam. Yeah? What's that? I'm going to try to recap the bonkers plot of this movie in two minutes or less. Ladies and gentlemen, start your engines starting now. Go. I didn't get a drum roll. <sighs> Go. Okay. The Galactic Trade Federation, Ooh. under the influence of a Sith Lord, <laughs> has blockaded Naboo Ooh. and is preparing to invade. Pretty cool, actually. We don't know why yet. All we know is that the Supreme Chancellor Valorum has secretly dispatched two Jedi Knights, Qui-Gon Jinn and his Padawan, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Woo! to do some negotiating. But instead, they are attacked and they stow away with a big battle droid army down to the surface of Naboo. They meet Jar Jar Binks and his people, the Gungans. They grab Queen Amidala of Naboo. Woo! <laughs> And they try to get to Coruscant for negotiations with the Senate to rescue Naboo. But wait. But wait, it gets worse. They are shot down and they land on Tatooine in the Outer Rim. There, they meet two slaves, Anakin Skywalker and his mom, Shmi. Anakin successfully wins the parts they need for their janky ship in the Boonta Eve classic pod race. Mm -hmm. Woo! And along the way, Anakin reveals himself to be the chosen one who will bring balance to the Force. Kind of woo. Yeah, woo. <laughs> also, they are being stalked by a Sith apprentice named Darth Maul. Woo! Qui-Gon takes the whole gang to Coruscant, mm -hmm. where Senator Palpatine of Naboo manipulates Queen Amidala into invoking a vote of no confidence in Chancellor Valorum thereby de facto installing himself as Supreme Chancellor. Woo! Well, Woo! <laughs> then Queen Amidala takes them all back to Naboo. She reveals herself to be her own handmaiden, Padme Amidala. Trixie. And she unites the Gungans with the Nabubians. The Nabooblers. And then the, they've... Wait, wait, we missed this joke the first time. The Nabooshoisie. The Nabooshoisie. <laughs> And then they fight battles on, count them, four fronts. The Gungans create a diversion One. by fighting the Trade Federation's droid army way outside of the city. Anakin Two. ends up winning a space battle to destroy the Trade Federation's control ship, which is powering the droid army. Padme... Woo, woo, woo. That's three. Infiltrates the palace to capture Trade Federation Viceroy Newt Gunray. And then finally, Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon fight Darth Maul. The Mauliest. There are great successes on all fronts, although there are some heavy prices to pay. Heaviest of all is the death of Qui-Gon Jinn at Darth Maul's hands. I mean, say that to the like 25 shot down pilots and the hundreds of dead Gungans, but okay. Yeah, I know. I felt a little weird about that. <laughs> Obi-Wan does give Darth Maul a 50% off special, sends him tumbling down an elevator shaft. Mm -hmm. And then there's a big parade and the Gungans and the Nabubians share a peace orb and Anakin's going to be trained by Obi-Wan. Everything is great, except there is a sinister presence across the galaxy. Yeah, and Anakin has to get a haircut. That was honestly nowhere close to two minutes, but I feel pretty good about that. Okay, if you feel good. All right. 
So this is like, what, the fourth time you've watched this movie ever? This is the third time I've watched this movie ever. Okay, so what are your impressions the third time ever? Yeah, I will say I continue to get butterflies in my stomach when I when I hear the main theme and mm-hmm. I see the big yellow logo splash across the screen. Very exciting. But actually, my overwhelming feeling was I felt some sadness on this watch through. Really? It reminds me of the first time I sat on the couch in my living room with you and watched Phantom Menace and mm-hmm. thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen and Mm -hmm. how I never get to be that person again. Mm -hmm. I never get to be that viewer again. Yeah, yeah. At this point, I am a seasoned fan. I have watched 99.8% of The Clone Wars. Yeah. Like, I have more context than some random person walking into a movie theater in 1999. Uh, You have more context than a lot of Star Wars fans who haven't taken the effort to watch The Clone Wars. I know. It's like I know too much. I'm damaged goods. (laughs) And I feel like so many of my criticisms have really softened over time. You know, that is actually the response to this movie as a whole. Okay, tell me more. So when this movie came out... It actually was, there's no way it could have lived up to the hype. It had been 16 years since Return of the Jedi. And importantly, during the preceding like 10 years or so throughout the 90s, George Lucas had been putting together the special effects releases, the special edition releases. Oh, of the original trilogy. Yeah. And so I had those on VHS as a kid. And it was a big deal because the things that were changed, some of them were minor and some of them were quite controversial. One of the big, but he'd always been making changes. One of the big changes is when Empire Strikes Back, the second movie of the original trilogy came out, it was episode five. And he went back and episode four became episode four because before that it was just Star Wars. Interesting. And so George Lucas had formed Industrial Light and Magic as a company in, I believe, 1978. And my cool Star Wars thing is that my great uncle Gene did some contracting for Industrial Light and Magic, and he was one of the people who helped create the 3D opening title crawl Mm -hmm. of the original trilogy. And so ILM had been doing so much crazy work throughout the 90s, including on another George Lucas project, the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Mm -hmm. And because Indiana Jones was the Spielberg Lucas thing of the 80s. And so coming back to it after 16 years, George Lucas has this whole vision and his vision includes, I want to do it as my vision. Now, when that came out, there's no way it could live up to the hype of the original trilogy. People are like, how are you going to make a prequel? How are you going to do this, that, the other thing? What are you going to do? And it was reasonably well received at the time. The most common criticism was that people said that people were expecting something I guess more adult because the people who had been children, like my parents' age, you know, if you were born in like between, I don't know, 1960 and 1970, you were a kid when the first Star Wars came out. Oh, so it becomes one of your deep core memories. It does. But now you're an adult because if you were born in 1960, now you're 40, you're 39, you're in your prime when the prequels are coming out and you're expecting something for you. But what actually happened is it's a movie for kids. 
It is and it isn't, right? Yeah. Like, I am one of those people who believes that just because there's a woman as your protagonist, that doesn't make your movie a female movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just because there's kids in your movie doesn't make it a movie for kids. No, that's true. Although it definitely earns its PG rating. There's uh, no blood. There's there's all, a little bit of blood, a tiny bit. When Darth Maul gets his half off deal, you don't. Even, I mean, you see two frames of Maul guts. There is splatter. Yeah, but other than that, it's it's very much a PG movie. Robert Ebert wrote a review of it to that effect, and he said, "I've watched, you know, because he's he's written he's watched a bajillion movies, and he said." A character-driven science fiction space opera. Those are Star Trek movies. Like mm. I want, I want it to be like George Lucas made a movie about the places, and he told a story, and it was you know it was the story that it is, but it's told about these places, and that is what Star Wars is about. It's about telling a movie about places and family. Was he disappointed in the Phantom Menace because of he that? He really enjoyed it. He he was like kind of the voice in the wilderness of people. Like so many people were writing like. It's uh, it's pondering. The pacing's a little off. It's got some stilted dialogue. Um, Liam Neeson is wasted. Ian McGregor, who was like a very up and coming star at the time, he spent had, most of the movie in the Naboo Starfighter. I was expecting like I'd forgotten how little he is in this movie, <laughs> and he was great. You know, he was great in it. That's so interesting because this is what I'm talking about, how I feel like my perceptions of this movie have so changed over time. Mm -hmm. The first time when we were sitting on my couch watching Phantom Menace on my laptop, I was 25 years old. Yeah. And I was like, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. I lost my mind at pod racing. I had sweaty palms. <laughs> I was just my, it's like watching a tennis match. My head was going back and forth and back and forth. Yeah. This watch through was so different. I was like, this is a slow burn, thinky, intellectual movie. Mm -hmm. And it took multiple watch throughs for me to finally pick up the threads that I was supposed to be picking up all along. Part of that might be that this is a long movie. Oh my God, it's so long. It's over two hours. And we have been watching 22 minute Clone Wars episodes. We've been watching little snack size, fun size which have, bites. Which we talk about this at length, that oftentimes they'll shove an entire movie's worth of content into even one episode for some of them. But oftentimes they'll shove a movie's worth of content into three episodes. So that's a half-sized movie. Right. And it feels, the pacing feels correct. The pacing feels good. This movie only makes sense to me if I'm watching it as if I'm going to write a book report on it later. Mm. And I just think that now that I'm finally on my third audio book report, because we <laughs> watched The Phantom Menace more than a year ago, yeah. split it into two parts, it was clear to me on this watch through that I was not picking up anything that was actually going on. So what are some things that you missed the first time? Oh my God, so many things that I missed. Okay, things that I missed. I didn't realize we were watching Decoy Padme every time we saw Queen Amidala. Except for one time when they're on Coruscant, they're, uh, Amidala's about to address the Senate and Anakin goes in and says, I'd like to say goodbye to Padme. I'm going to go be a Jedi. And actual Padme Amidala says... She can't meet with you right now. Because, we'll tell her. Yeah, we'll tell she her. She knows. But that's because the handmaiden Padme is nowhere to be seen. Yeah. 
absolutely blew my mind. It actually <laughs> made some pieces fall into place for me, which is that I did not connect with Padme on my first watch throughs. Mm -hmm. And I realized it's because I wasn't connecting with Queen Amidala, mm -hmm. but I was deeply connecting with Handmaiden Padme. Yeah. And I just kept getting confused who we were watching. Fun. Other things that I missed, I did not realize that you can watch Darth Maul's legs falling independently of the rest of his body. Oh, yeah. Down the elevator shaft. Yeah. Horrifying. Mm -hmm. This is pretty embarrassing. I think I didn't understand that the Trade Federation was unloading an army onto Naboo. No. And I don't think I realized that the Gungan army was a diversion. Padme specifically does say that. Or I guess, so there is a scene in the second half of the movie when Padme's putting together her mega genius plan. Yeah, it's great. And uh, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan are sitting there in what we've now realized is the actual capacity of Jedi in this context. As negotiators, as advisors. As advisors, because they're like, yeah, well, we've studied war. And Padme's like, here's my plan. And Qui-Gon's like, you're going to lose a lot of Gungans. And Boss Nass is like, we are prepared to take this fight. He's we like, are right. warrior people. Have, we are ready. I have said my piece, which is a lot of Gungans are going to die. He so, also yeah. tells her it's a great plan. Yes, which it is. But It is. I mean, fighting a battle on three fronts and conceiving of a battle on three fronts is deeply impressive to me. And he called her specifically out on all the things that have to go right and Padme said, yes, the most important thing is grabbing the Viceroy. And that's the part that she was taking responsibility for. Oh, and she for. does it with aplomb. I just think my brain glossed over that an actual invasion of Naboo was underway. Hmm. There was just so much to pay attention to. Yeah, yeah. Despite the pacing. And so going back a little bit, over the years, different releases of this movie have had scenes added and subtracted and Ooh. changed and a lot of the stuff that was added there's a, a sequence in the second lap of the pod race and there's another sequence where uh wado is cheering for sebulba and most of those were actually taken away again because it stretches out the pacing too much yeah this is a movie that does not reward a casual watcher mm. truly the threads don't start coming together until the last 25 minutes yeah, when all of the plots split off and go their different ways. And that's when you realize why the theater of this movie is Naboo. That's when mm -hmm. you realize that Senator Palpatine is manipulating the entire situation, which we know. Yes. Big spoiler. Which also audiences in 1999 knew. Oh, right? okay. Because it is Emperor Palpatine in oh, the original trilogy. Okay. And we knew... That Anakin becomes Darth Vader. We know what happens to Obi-Wan in episode four and five and six. We know where all these characters end up. Okay. That makes me feel a little bit less like I'm spoiling things by saying Senator Palpatine is manipulating the entire situation mm -hmm. with the realm that is at his disposal, which is Naboo, because he's the senator of Naboo. That's why this movie is taking place largely on Naboo. Yeah. So that he can twist the situation to get voted in as Supreme Chancellor, mm -hmm. which was a big question of mine watching this even the third time. I was just like, why are we on Naboo? 
Yeah. Well, and it took me till the last third of the movie to realize it's because this is what Palpatine has control over. It makes me think, so some of the deeper Naboo lore is that Feed, the capital of Naboo, and by extension, Naboo itself, is run by a handful of Nabooshwazi, very yeah. wealthy families. <laughs> and the Palpatines are one of them, as are the Amidalas. Oh. And so it's kind of a... Whoever has the queen, whoever has the daughter of the right age is the queen, and it moves around. And so Palpatine, as a scion of nobility, is able to manipulate by saying, hey, the queen's like 14 years old. I can maybe get her to be this outside voice as I manipulate this situation to occur. I thought that was really interesting because otherwise his plans don't really make sense. Like he specifically in the opening scene orders Newt Gunray to attempt to kill the Jedi. I think he might. Very cheeky of him. I feel like he probably meant for the Jedi to die. I just don't know what he was expecting to happen after that. That's putting a lot of faith in a couple of Nemodians. Well, maybe he knows Nemodians well enough to know that, you know, because there, there's also the, I don't know what their name is, but there's like a general on the bridge of the ship in that opening scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's like, have you ever faced Jedi before? We're going to die, my <laughs> we friend. We will not survive. <laughs> 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 Gunner is like, how are they getting through? And the general's like, oh, man. Like, <laughs> I called this from 10 feet away. Yeah. My my big question, mm-hmm. and this is highlighted and starred in my notes, Sam, why do you think George Lucas or the powers that be chose this story for episode one? Why did oh, they choose yeah. this economic, convoluted, trade route centric, diplomatic negotiation story? So to tell the story of... Luke Skywalker, Mm -hmm. you watch the original trilogy. Mm -hmm. To tell the story of Anakin Skywalker, you watch episodes one through six. Yeah. And so by extension, by taking all of these things that George Lucas said, I can't create these. And when he went back to do Empire Strikes Back, he contracted with Industrial Light and Magic, Mm -hmm. had them put together some CGI stuff Mm -hmm. and said, Okay, it's not quite good enough. We're still going to go back and use the technology of the original trilogy advanced significantly for Empire Strikes Back to do that. And later on, even did more CGI for Return of the Jedi, but it was still a lot of practical effects. It's only 16 years later that the technology had advanced enough to have a CGI main character. And by extension, the CGI armies, droids, later on clones, all the things that George Lucas wanted to have. So the real question, I guess, is one of literary analysis. Never start a story at any time other than the most interesting time to start yeah, a story. Yeah, totally. In Media Res. Yeah. So with Luke's story of there is a rebellion against the Empire, that's a cool story. Making the Empire something that is much more transient in space and having the heroes of the old times, which is Obi-Wan Kenobi, going back and telling the story of Obi-Wan Kenobi is an interesting one. Because how interesting would it be if you're Luke to go to, you know, meet an old hermit on the hill and the hermit's like, oh, yes, of course I knew your father. We used to fight together in the Clone Wars. And, and there was like, what? And you're like, like, that was before any semblance of current government. That was like, that was as if someone was like, ah, yes, this was back before the 
Revolutionary War in the U.S. Like it's a completely different story. And you want to hear that story and you want to see before the Jedi were all but extinct. You want to tell this story with these special effects that George Lucas, through making the original trilogy, would know were not quite possible yet. Yeah, I I totally understand that. You want to go back to the heroes in their prime yeah. and see the, the Jedi Order when it's functioning in a relatively peaceful time. Mm-hmm. But the trappings of episode one confuse me because so, they're so yeah. convoluted. And people talk about this with George Lucas a lot because he'll sit there and he'll just be like spitballing. And he's like, oh, yeah, well, there's the Gungans and they live in bubble cities underwater and they, and they have, use glowing goo to power all of their stuff and all the people sitting around are like are you like coming up with this on the spot or is this like from your secret cache of notes that you're <laughs> hiding on your person somewhere and it's like 50 50 because he's this insanely creative person who is putting together this whole universe by making it just as weird as possible and I think he wanted to go to do two things and one of them this is a I guess um uh, uh, S fact, the Sam fact. Okay. That I said earlier, if you want to tell the story of Luke, you watch episodes four, five, six. Mm-hmm. If you want to watch, if you want to learn the story of Anakin, it's one through six. And if you want to learn the story of Palpatine, it's one through nine. Mm-hmm. And I think that is perhaps going back to the point in the lives where everything went interesting. Mm-hmm. And that, that also calls back, it calls back to what led to the downfall of this republic which stood for thousands of years yeah because that is an interesting story going to say so like rome ostensibly fell in like 453 ad so you can go and say okay what's a story about 473 ad oh okay that's interesting because we only have 25 extras so we're telling a story in northern italy after the fall of rome or we can go to like 425 and tell a very different story about the last stages of the Roman Empire. It just requires a lot more chariots, pod racers. It requires a lot more budget. It requires a lot of effects that we don't have access to. So I think after the success of Star Wars, George Lucas wanted to expand his vision. And he expanded the universe and realized that there was an interesting story to be told earlier than the one he started with. Hmm. Because this is not a samurai movie. And the original trilogy is. Yeah, what is this story? This is a story, and this is one of the original criticisms of the movie, which is like a trade dispute is such a banal 19th century thing. Like I said, I'm a seasoned Star Wars fan. I have Mm -hmm. a lot of knowledge. I swear to God, every time I watch Phantom, I have to read the opening intro text paragraph by paragraph and say, Okay, I can do this. We got the Trade Federation. Mm -hmm. We got Nimodians. We got trade routes. We got Naboo. We got the Senate. And fit the puzzle pieces together in my brain so that I'm ready to start the movie. Hmm. Well, that is the point of those paragraphs. Yeah, but if if you're in a movie theater, you don't get to hit pause. This is a deep first world luxury of watching this on my computer. This is true. I think it was... Bismarck, who said that war is an extension of diplomacy by other means. And so by taking what was ostensibly from for the first two and a half or so minutes of the movie, a diplomatic mission before it becomes a war shows how this republic was a tinderbox ready to start 
fire. And so mm. this incident sparks eventually the Clone Wars, eventually the Empire, eventually the Rebellion. Because if the Empire had been eternal, if it had lasted for hundreds or thousands of years, then fighting against it would feel much more, it would have been much tougher. But if it's something that's only been transient, if, it's, if there's people who remember what times were like before the Empire, which Obi-Wan talks about, mm-hmm. then there's something to go back to. Mm. And at its core, and I've talked about this at length, Star Wars is um, small C conservative. It hearkens to a conservation of power in an assembly which has had power indefinitely, right? And sure, that that Senate, the Republic Senate, becomes something of democratic means at that point. But on an individual planet level, the same machineries of power always exist. And it's it's fundamentally a feudal system. So we go, we want to look at that feudal system and see where it starts to break down and become something more or something less. Mm. Yeah. I know that's not quite an answer, but like it's a very yeah. thinky intellectual answer, and this is a very thinky intellectual movie. It feel I watched some behind the scenes footage of George Lucas on mm-hmm. day one of writing the episode one script, and mm-hmm. he drops his kids off at school, and he goes up into his little writing cave, and he pulls out a fresh yellow legal pad, mm-hmm. and he's like, "Okay, I just need an idea," mm-hmm. and it's just like he sat there in his writing cave. And intellectualized these factors and dynamics. And that's very cool when you break it apart the way that we break it apart on the podcast. And you think about it really hard and you are picking up what they're putting down. But there are some elements that I think don't come across in a very visceral way. Right? And they only start to come together when you do this deep analysis. So maybe that's my big thing about Phantom. Yeah. I also know that George Lucas was a student of history and really oh, appreciated yeah, yeah, what yeah. led like one event to another. I'm reminded of what's often called World War Zero, the Seven Years' War, of which the Revolutionary Wars, which rocked Europe, and the American Revolution are somewhat extensions of, because there were wars fought on every continent during the Seven Years' War, back and forth. And that was sprung from a war of Jenkins' ear, which is just some trumped-up thing, some trumped-up reasons for war. And so many wars have started as a result of trumped-up reasons that really it's just that people want to have a war in order to install new structures of power. I mean, that's the Archduke Franz Ferdinand story. A little bit, yeah. And that's what this is all about, too, Mm, is, is finding... You know, you can go back as far as you want to find the reasons for a war, but you kind of may as well just start, start with the spark with the instigating. Let's mm-hmm. start with the spark. Yeah. Cool. Okay, you know me. I want to talk about the characters. Yeah, there's some really interesting ones. And this is where they're all introduced. Yeah. So I want to start with Shmi Skywalker. 
Okay. Because Shmi was one of my big question marks the first time we watched Phantom Menace. Kind of a cipher of a character, yeah. She is a cipher. And I was hugely critical of the treatment of Shmi Skywalker on my first go around Mm -hmm. of The Phantom Menace. She doesn't even get a name. No. She hardly gets any agency. Yeah. But on this watch through, what I was more tempted to see, and this is where I keep talking about how my criticisms have softened over time, what I was tempted to see was this very deep love and tenderness that Shmi has for Anakin. Yeah, it's very noticeable. This incredible gentleness that she has as a person. Mm -hmm. And I think it took until the Anakin being freed by Qui-Gon scene that I remembered my big initial criticism, Mm -hmm. which is that Shmi hardly gets any individual will of her own. Yeah. And that is one of the original criticisms of this movie. I went back uh, today and was reading some like 2001 or 1999 reviews. Oh, and that scene of Anakin leaving was one that was pretty uh, critically panned. Yeah, I bet it was trashed because yeah. it's kind of trash. <laughs> well, okay. You have a finite number of minutes in a movie. And how much do you want to explore Anakin leaving his mom? Well, when you go back with perfect knowledge after watching Attack of the Clones, I think this becomes a very pivotal moment, right? Well, yes and no. I spend the a fair bit of time working with people in recovery and I'm in recovery myself. And I have heard a lot of stories of people who have extremely distant relationships with their parents to the the extent where this relationship of perhaps Anakin thinking that he'll come back in the morning, perhaps he's still riding the adrenaline high of winning a pod race. Yeah, he's nine years old. He got the best news of his life twice over. He mm-hmm. won the Boon to Eve Classic and he's being freed. And so he's on this thing where like everything's just working out and this is just a temporary setback. Just like during the pod race when his little Veeble Fetzer that Zabulba knocked off flies past him or earlier when his cable flies loose and he has to fix it. Oh yeah, and he just grits his little teeth yeah. and he does the thing and puts his ship back together in midair and keeps zooming forward. And so he's thinking that this is just like that, that he'll be back in maybe a few weeks or a few months, just, you know, not that long. And then he's going to build up the way that relationship actually happened in his head mm. because he is a child of trauma. He was well, raised he's a slave. nine years old. Yeah, exactly. I think we cannot forget that he's nine years old. The original script had Anakin at 12, which I, for many reasons, I think is a much more reasonable age for Anakin in this movie. Mm-hmm. But canonically, he's nine. He has no object permanence. Yeah. Well, I mean. I actually don't know how nine-year-old's yeah. brains are developed. He might Fact check me on that. He might have object permanence. I mean, object permanence (laughs) kicks in at a matter of weeks, but nine years old is definitely still a kid. Yes, very much so. And while trauma or being raised a slave ages people or matures people faster, you're still still a kid. Yeah. And I think that actually Jake Lloyd played him quite well. Oh, yeah. So if we're going to talk about Anakin, let's talk about Anakin. Yeah. Because I recently, semi-recently... I watched this New York Times mini documentary about mm-hmm. Devin Michael. Yeah, yeah. Who was almost baby Anakin Skywalker instead mm-hmm. of Jake Lloyd. 
It's called The Unchosen One, if you want to look it up. It's the New York Times Almost Famous series, which is great. So I watched Devin Michaels audition tapes, and he was amazing. Mm -hmm. He was perfect. He had this darkness and this reticence and this pain to him. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's my baby Anakin. What's interesting about that is there was a deleted scene from The Phantom Menace where, after the race, Anakin beats a child to death. Oh my god, what? Yeah, beats (gasps) beats a Rodian to death. No way. And it was taken out because George Lucas wanted Anakin to be a better, happier, lighter child. Innocent. And have the darkness come later. Yeah. Especially because... Later on in this movie, you know, Yoda's like, I don't approve of it, but the council has allowed you, Obi-Wan, to take on Anakin as your Padawan. If the child had been any darker, I don't think that would have been possible. I think the Jedi would have been like, hell no. Okay, that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so it. It's because I had these original feelings about Devin Michael, who was mm-hmm. almost baby Anakin, yeah. that I was expecting to feel some kind of way about Jake Lloyd in this movie. But actually, I found small Anakin. Mm-hmm. I'm going to call him small Anakin. Mm-hmm. He was entirely delightful. Yeah. And so when I was searching for that 1999 movie review, I found so many, which are like 20 years later, how we feel about The Phantom Menace. Oh, yeah. And at the time... People, you know, didn't love Jake Lloyd's performance, but it's in like the years after that people really started to panic because some of his lines weren't that great. But honestly, kids are weird and they'll say weird stuff. The dialogue did not bother me on this watch through at all. Only a few lines bothered me, but not not that many. Yeah. The, actually, the CGI bothered me a little bit more. Yeah, we can definitely talk about it. Mm-hmm. But, like, Anakin and his speeder goggles gives me just a deep and abiding well of joy in my heart. That pod race is still top tier. Pod racing is still the best. Baby's first space battle when he's up there demolishing the Nimodian control ship, messing around with R2 for the first time. So I was recently at one of my local bookstores, the Mutiny Information Cafe in Denver, and I picked up a book. It is from 1999 or 2009. It's an official souvenir magazine. So you may remember these, or you can still find them for various stuff in like supermarket checkout stands, but it's funny to find one that's like 20 years old. Yeah. And it's a beautiful condition. Yeah. And it has no idea what happens later. You know, it's written just after The Phantom Menace. And so in that space battle, one of the pilots is seen dying, and that pilot is John Knoll, who was the visual effects director. Oh my so god, got, no way! Yeah, he got a little, little extra in there, but he did all that space battle stuff. That's so cool. Yeah, I love the, the space battle, though. I love the space battle. I am slowly starting to realize the redeeming effects of the Clone Wars that have crawled into my prequel movie experience. That is what the Clone Wars is for. That's what the Clone Wars is for, right? Mm -hmm. I'm just not trusting my perceptions as much because I have so much more context than original watchers did, than I did the first time I watched Mm -hmm. Phantom. Here's why I'm not super trusting myself. It's because Matt Lantner Mm -hmm. in The Clone Wars is the voice of Anakin Skywalker. And something about his delivery of grown Anakin's lines 
reminds me of this Anakin, of yeah. Jake Lloyd Anakin. There's this cadence to his speech, and he's very careful about the pronunciations. And it totally endeared me to baby Anakin, that I could see his grown-up self in him. Yeah. But that didn't exist for anybody before 2012 or 2017 or 2020. That's very true. And that is actually something that I also ran into with Obi-Wan this time around. Oh, really? Yeah. So Alec Guinness was uh, original Obi-Wan, had yeah. a lot of movies, yeah. was in a ton of movies. Ian McGregor took a few of his mannerisms and a few of his speech cadences because at the time, Ian McGregor was famous for train spotting, for yeah. playing a junkie. And... <laughs> was in this movie as someone who had taken on a slightly different accent and a slightly different set of speech patterns in order to be more like Alec Guinness. Because he, he's a great actor. He does his homework. He is a great actor, very young at the time. And I thought that was really cool to have that moved forward. There's a lot of effort that goes into just the idea of, hey, we're filming a prequel with a different actor. Yeah, and prequels just cannot escape the weight of their predecessors, the no. weight of what they're trying to build up to. Yeah. And so going to that extra effort to make the character have a continuance of character is really important. That's a neat, yeah. that's a neat grab, though, to know that Clone Wars Anakin carries on from young Anakin here. Yeah, it just made me feel a connection to Anakin that I absolutely did not have the first time I watched Phantom. Yeah, especially in the space battle, I found uh, baby Anakin's antics to be a little over the top. Uh, yeah, yeah, I can see that. I mean, Qui-Gon is like, stay in this cockpit. And then he goes off with Padme to infiltrate the palace of yeah. Thede. And Anakin is like, oh, I laughed out loud. I was like, <laughs> you better believe he's going to stay in that cockpit and he's going to he's gonna cause so much trouble. Yeah, and he, he sure enough did. He does ham it up. He hams it up. They could have done a little bit better with the effects on that. The effects at the time were... All of the space battle is CGI. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, the first yeah, time. Yeah, they're not filming that. in outer space. Well, no, I mean, obviously, but they're not even filming with models. They made big models. And then what they had at the time was a CNC machine at ILM to take the drawings of these little models and then they could scan them and digitize them and yeah, back yeah, and yeah. forth. And yeah. so they'd make a digital model and then print it out as a, a scale model. And they were able to do that for scenes back and forth for comparison. It was so much work. It was, this movie is 65 days of filming and two years of production. Yeah. Well, and many, many years of just developing the script, too. I think it was a five-year process. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. And I wonder, over the course of those five years, if some essential thing was lost. This movie felt more hollow to me than it used to. That is, at its core, the other, the, the actual legitimate part of the criticism. Okay. Because watching a movie as a kid and then a prequel comes out as an adult and expecting it to age as well as you thought, that's on you. Yes. <laughs> you, oh, you are, you are very uh, correct, sir. So, so that, are, this is on yeah, me. Yeah, I, I know a lot of people who are just a few years older than me who are like, I'm so excited for the new Thundercats or whatever, oh Transformers. <laughs> and I'm like, you realize that that was a... 
That was real trash back when it was out, and you just have very rose-colored glasses over it your history. It is not going to live up to mm-hmm. your core memory, my friend. And honestly, like original trilogy Star Wars, I can see why it was so good. And talking to people who watched it in theaters in 1977, really cool. I didn't watch it in theaters in 1977. You were not even a fetus. I was, I was nine years from <laughs> being a fetus. And so by that point, the state of the art of science fiction had moved so much further mm-hmm. that I was like, oh, this is cool. It wasn't as revolutionary. Mm-hmm. And that's how we feel about Phantom Menace as well. It's It doesn't look revolutionary now. At the time, it was revolutionary. Oh, yeah. But people wanted their heroes to age with them and still give them those feelings of yeah. their childhood. Yeah. And that's just not the way anything works. But this movie being empty is, I think... It's a criticism, but it's one that's almost impossible to overtake as well. And I think it is largely because we're coming off of the Clone Wars, which is so lived in. Mm. Every scene in the Clone Wars, because it's animated, even in the early scenes, there are posters on the walls. There are scuff marks on the doors and on the floors. There are bystanders walking by on their own missions with, you know, different... And, and this is a little bit true on Tatooine, but... The Clone Wars has weight to it mm-hmm. that Phantom does not. Well, I'm reminded going back to, I want to say season two or season three of the Clone Wars, there's an episode where Plo Koon and Ahsoka go down into the underbelly of Coruscant. Oh, it's amazing. They go to the first level of Coruscant. And in that, I remarked during our podcast that it's very cool that they like hover sled that they take has like moving lights on it. And advertisements, translucent advertisements on the top of the speeder taxi cab. But when we go back to the Clone Wars movie or to Mm -hmm. Ambush, Mm -hmm. it is not very lived in compared to season seven. And that is once again, a technological thing. You are so right. The technology necessary to seem very lived in is not something that is possible at this level. It, it just required so much effort in The Phantom Menace to make that happen. Like, mm-hmm. Tatooine feels lived in, but less so for um, Coruscant and less so even for Naboo. Mm-hmm. And part of that is, I think, in the main set-piece battle with the Gungans, it's like, oh, look at this beautiful freaking football pitch, you know? Like, <laughs> trimmed... <laughs> trimmed lawn because you can't you can't have it i mean you can't animate a tree at that distance and have it look the same each time your computers will light on fire (laughs) it's gonna be really complicated until and when we when we initially watched the clone wars and talked or watched phantom menace and talked about on this podcast you're like oh they stole it from wakanda forever they totally well i didn't say they stole it from i said i was getting big black panther vibes yeah which which i did this watch through also which is 20 years of technology later, you are able to have realistic smoke come off the shelves as they hit the shield. And oh, you are yeah. able to have plants and animals as opposed to Gungans who were completely added in post-production are complete CGI characters. Mm-hmm. So we've really come a long way. And we've seen that in the Clone Wars as well. And I think that the addition of, as you said, that lived-in effect is really important for the whole story. I definitely have thoughts about the Gungans, but since we're talking about Naboo, I do want to make sure we talk about Padme. 
Padme is so important. Padme is so important. And I'm realizing that my disconnect with Padme the first time I was watching Phantom Menace totally blindsided me to how fantastic she is. (laughs) This is Padme's movie. It is. She has the plan. She has the moves. She makes it all happen. She's the one who is the driver behind every major plot point. She really is. As I was, you know, doing the podcast social media one day, I found this really fun, quick little snippet interview with Natalie Portman, who's Mm -hmm. now grown up, but she was... I think 14 years old when she was playing Padme. Yeah, she's a she's like three years older than me. Yeah. So yeah. And she said in this interview, she had just been in Japan before filming episode one, and she went to Kabuki Theater mm. in Japan. And that slow, dreamlike movement is what she was channeling when she was playing Queen Amidala, right? And I totally see that when she's not playing Padme the Handmaiden, she's playing Queen Amidala. And honestly, I think that's one of the reasons I didn't connect with her, is that she seemed so dreamy and out of sync with the rest of the world. Which is definitely how the role is supposed to be. Because a queen is supposed to be above. Right. To be so royal, to be so regal. Yeah. So I loved putting the pieces together. I think Phantom, in this sense, really rewards second and third time watchers. So you start to clue in on when you're watching Padme and when you're watching her decoy. Mm -hmm. The main costume designer, I also want to bring this up because I think it's so cool. The main costume designer said that she designed Padme's costumes to take up a lot of horizontal space to make her look larger than life. And then at the same time, she was giving the handmaidens a lot of vertical space. Mm -hmm. She was making them look really slender and long and lean and unassuming so that when Padme was masquerading as a handmaiden, no one would look at her and think she was a threat. Yeah, which is the major plot point. Yeah. When the battles all turn south simultaneously because the uh, ship battle isn't going well, Jar Jar is captured, Padme is captured. There is a moment when everything is looking real dicey. Yep. And then Anakin saves the day and Padme saves herself. But it's actually her handmaiden who saves her by showing up in full queen regalia and being like, Haha, it is me, the queen. And the Newt Gunray's like, this is a decoy. And Padme is like, oh, how the turntables. Yes, they won't let me keep booze in my throne because I'm 14, but I keep blasters. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think it is so cool that Padme gets to spend a lot of time as a handmaiden Mm -hmm. because I think it keeps her from getting insulated from regular people and from regular things that are going on in the galaxy. Yeah. And Natalie Portman's career is really interesting because she had been in a few movies prior to this, but had also been turned down for several roles Mm. because those roles were overly sexualized for her age. And she was like very young, you know, her breakout film was Leon the Professional. And it is a deeply sexualized movie. It is. But there's uh, there was going to be a Lolita movie and they didn't. And it just wasn't a good fit for her. And I think that's really interesting because that is also sort of the energy that Padme Amidala has in this movie as someone who is a very young queen 
but not quite at the level of sexualization yet. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that makes the eventual relationship between her and Anakin more palatable because you look at them and you're like, okay, they're both kids. And, you know, a five or however many year age difference, five year age difference, when you're 20 is still a big deal. But when you're like 30, it's like nothing, you know? Yeah. You know, and I don't think I put this together until this watch through, but it's this, the same time in his life that Anakin is losing Shmi, mm-hmm. his mom, is when he's gaining Padme. Yep. And they have that really interesting scene on the ship as they're going to Coruscant. Padme says, I care for you. Mm-hmm. That'll never stop. And he says, I care for you too, only I... And then Padme finishes, you miss your mom. Mm-hmm. I don't think I realized how intertwined those feelings are of losing his mom, gaining Padme, transferring all of this love that he has nowhere to put into a person that he can put it on. Yeah. It's very Freudian. I'm not going to lie. It is. It's also at that age, and for me, a little bit of arrested development, but I'm reminded of when I went away to college or something, I would find like girlfriends' parents would replace my parents in some extent. Oh, yeah, totally. And... Friends would replace family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that perhaps Anakin recognized because he gets on the ship. It's shiny. He sees that Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon have like super reflexes. He's able to do all sorts of things now that they're here. And he's like, I'm ready for an upgrade of life. And Mm. I'm ready to move beyond my mother. That's what Shmi says to him. Yeah. She says, you're meant for greater things. I Mm -hmm. think this is a conversation she has with Qui-Gon. And she also says to him, be brave and don't look back. Yeah. Which I think would have been the most pivotal advice of his life if he'd been able to take it. If he'd been able to really, really, truly turn his back on his mom and Tatooine, the events of Attack of the Clones might not have happened. Yeah. So... Speaking of Anakin and Shmi, there's the interesting bit about the midichlorians in this. Yeah. And we've talked at length about this, uh, particularly when we had my cousin Chris on the show to talk about how controversial this was when it came out, that the Force wasn't something that you could learn. It was something you were innately born with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how problematic that was. But... Throughout our watch through the Clone Wars, we've talked, especially with Qui-Gon's ghost, about the living force. Mm -hmm. And how in this watch through, I'm noticing that Qui-Gon is, he's way out there. He's a weirdo. And Obi-Wan calls him out on that. He said, you'd be on the council if you embraced the code more. And Qui-Gon's like, whatever. Like, I just do my thing. I'm having fun. But Qui-Gon is a man on a mission. On a mission to follow midichlorians, to follow the living force, to explore that boundary. What we discover in the finale of season six of The Clone Wars is that he's on the quest to discover immortality through the living and cosmic force. Yeah, and he seems to be the only one who's deeply studying that, and that's like his, his jam. And I find that intriguing. It also makes sense why the idea of a chosen one is not one that is the council takes on themselves. But also in this watch through, I noticed that Yoda and Mace were more opposed to having the chosen one be a Jedi than having Anakin be a Jedi. Mm. 
And I don't think that they thought we can't do anything with Anakin because Anakin's conflicted. I think they thought having the chosen one follow the Jedi path is not non-attachment. Mm-hmm. Because the chosen one has to choose their own path and raising them in one or the other is a problem. And I wonder if Yoda was drawn to that inkling because Yoda throughout this whole movie is against it. Mm-hmm. Vehemently against it. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say that I didn't hate the midichlorians so much in this watch through mm-hmm. as much as I thought. And here's why. It's the way that Qui-Gon describes them to Anakin. He says, you know, they're tiny life forms that live in the cells of all living things. Mm-hmm. They speak to us all the time, telling us the will of the force. Mm-hmm. And if you learn to quiet your mind, you'll hear them. And for me, as a non-force user, um, not a Jedi, (laughs) I actually loved that because I think that is a roadmap for regular people to say the universe lives inside of everything and it lives inside of you too. Mm -hmm. And if you quiet your mind, you will notice. You will notice that you are an integral part of the universe. That's true. I just thought it didn't bug me the way that I thought it would bug me. Like, no, I'm not a Jedi. This is a fantasy sci-fi. This is sci-fi a fantasy. I know Sam's making a sad face. Maybe your powers have yet to reveal themselves. Maybe. (laughs) I feel like I'm too old to be a Jedi. (laughs) If Anakin at nine years old is too old, I'm sorry, my friend. I think you're over the hill. (laughs) Man. My last character thing actually is about Qui-Gon. Okay. Which is that I don't love Qui-Gon anymore. Oh my I know. Because he looks so tall in this movie. He's so tall and swole. He's he's literally two Natalie Portmans tall. (laughs) He's he's basically three Jake Lloyds tall. You could measure him on a measuring stick of Shmi Skywalker and he'd be more than two Shmi's. Because like when he kneels down to talk to Anakin, he like takes a knee. And then leans over, <laughs> crouches and then down, crouches down, and then he's still, and then he, and then he looks down about twenty five degrees, and he's looking Jake Lloyd right in the eye. Jake Lloyd is not the length of Liam Neeson's arm. No, it also makes Ian McGregor look small. Because, it does because he comes up to like Liam Neeson's collarbones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, maybe maybe you're just over. Overtly tall guys or what? I don't know. Maybe I'm just prejudiced against seven foot tall Irishmen. I don't think so. <laughs> I I think there's a real soft spot in my heart for seven mm-hmm. foot tall Irishmen. But Qui-Gon became a much more problematic character than he originally was for me. He uses the force to manipulate a lot of things. He really does. Mm-hmm. And we going back to that original criticism of the Shmi and Anakin leaving scene, we have just been watching season seven of The Clone Wars mm-hmm. when we meet the Martez sisters, yep. whose parents were killed by the Jedi. Mm-hmm. And then Luminara swings by afterwards and is like, the Force will be with you. Bye. Mm-hmm. And then she just leaves. And that's what Qui-Gon does to Shmi. So... I actually have a much more generous interpretation of that. Please tell me. I want to go back to my Qui-Gon simp days. I want to stand Qui-Gon again. (laughs) So this is all before the Clone Wars. And the great failing of the Jedi during the Clone Wars was one of attachment. 
the Jedi should be practicing non-attachment. And so by living a life of like basically not even apologizing or making things right, they are showing their principles of non-attachment. And that's a very crass way of looking at it. And that is not my experience with non-attachment, but it is a way of experiencing non-attachment. And I think that is what the Jedi are going for, particularly because there is a moment in the teenage Boba Fett arc in the Clone Wars at the end when Boba Fett's going to jail at age 14. He has got to go into adult jail too. I know, and he confronts Mace. Yeah, and he says, I'll never forgive you. And Mace is just, well... You're going to have to, because Mace, as a Jedi master, lives at this level of complete non-attachment with regards to getting involved with things. Yeah, yeah. And the whole Jedi Council, the reason that they send Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan to Naboo is not to resolve this war. They're like, there is a dark warrior, a Sith out there. We need you to keep track of that. Sith are our business. Wars are not really our business. We're called Mm. in to be neutral avatars. Mm. And so, in a way, by being so callous, Qui-Gon is actually living the Jedi Code. Okay. And there's talk about this in the talk about slavery. And Anakin is like, surely you're here to free all the slaves. And I Qui-Gon's know, like, right? He's like, no, I'm not. He's like, I am really not. I have no comment. I am. He's, he's speaking the legalese of like, I am a lawyer. I am not your lawyer. If you need legal advice, you should acquire the services of a lawyer who's registered in your area. You know, like <laughs> he's, he's doing that type of thing. Gosh, it's hard to square that Qui-Gon and that kind of Jedi with what Ahsoka is saying in season seven of the Clone Wars mm. of what people need the Jedi to be. Yeah. Why aren't the Jedi called to free all the slaves in the galaxy? Well, perhaps that's why the Republic is, as we are in our season seven watch through, dead. It just doesn't Mm, know it yet. Yeah. Because, you know, slavery exists as a continuation of power. Yeah. And for for, (laughs) for a rich person to be born, poor people have to be born. Like the reason that, you are poor is because people were born rich. That is the way of the world. And so looking at a old school, feudalistic, conservative society where there are power stratifications necessarily entails some level of slavery. And so having avatars of light and justice would actually make them criminals. It would make them the bad guys to the Republic if they were doing good because the Republic exists on enacting evil on people through what systems it does through the systems of power oh no oh that's that's big bad yeah that's bad news and so this conflict with the trade federation we were just talking about this a few episodes ago that the conflict between old school feudalism and modern capitalism is the conflict at its heart between the republic and the separatists it's also like the forces of conflict in the American Revolutionary War, and particularly the American Civil War, of here are people who were born to power, and here are people who acquired power through selling other people. It's not actually which ones you think. So you're saying that because the Jedi Council is wedded to this way of conserving Mm -hmm. the status quo, the way of the Republic, and because the Republic is already broken, because Mm -hmm. it allows 
things like the perpetuation of slavery. It would allow Naboo to just be taken over by the Trade Federation to yep. allow these big discussions to die in committees, yep. which is what Palpatine and, and Padme are saying. Because the Jedi are willing to continue that, they're already yep. corrupt. They are part of a dying system. Oh. And I think Palpatine recognized that. And that's why he figured now was the time to strike. Wow. Because that is basically what he is telling Padme. Yeah, he's telling her all the right stuff. It he's rings really true. the bureaucrat, you know? He's saying all these things. And they're the types of things which... You could absolutely tell a teenager as someone in whatever age Palpatine is in this. He looks like a 50s, maybe early 60s yeah. statesman kind of look. Yeah. Although maybe to be a human, you want as a statesman, you want to gray the hair a little prematurely so you look more distinguished. Yeah, it's the whole silver fox thing. Exactly. Like the touch of silver. Enough energy to be effective, but enough touch of gray to exactly. look distinguished. Exactly. <laughs> but, but Palpatine is is saying all these things in order to set up a cascade in which the broken system is broken in the way that he can use its instruments to bend to his will. Mm. Yeah. So Palpatine is played by Ian McDermott, who is actually the episode six Palpatine. Yeah. Which is so funny to have the same actor play a younger version of themselves in a prequel like 16 years later. But that's because it was a stupid amount of makeup on original trilogy Palpatine. And one of the special effects was to go back. The first time we see Palpatine's face in the original trilogy is in uh, Empire Strikes Back. I think this is a great argument to be made for hiring young actors and aging them up so that when you start your mega film George <laughs> Lucas verse, yeah. you just get to take all the makeup off well, and then stick them in a prequel. Just recently in the last two weeks, uh, well, I know that uh, James Earl Jones put his voice to AI in perpetuity for to be Darth Vader. Wow. And uh, Bruce Willis is allowing himself to be AI actor for perpetuity. Oh my God, how cool. I think it's horrible. Yeah, as I said it, as it came out of my mouth, I was like, wait a second. Because that that would feed into the same reason, the exact same reason for the critical panning of Phantom Menace. Because 30 years from now, people who grew up on whatever, Kenobi and Andor and and this Vader and Clone Wars are going to have AI versions of all the voices and AI versions of all the actors of their favorite movies. And they'll be out of work because all the actors will be dead by that point. And and the stories will be just rehashed versions of the same. And And then the royalties just go to their families. What? Families? No, the royalties go to the company. Oh, no. But... There's no new actors to tell the story. And fundamentally, at its core, all of the great actors of Star Wars have been fresh faces. Mm. Ian McGregor and Liam Neeson were like the most famous actors in this. Natalie Portman had been in like two movies by this point, and Ian McGregor had been in like two movies. Samuel L. Jackson, to me, has always been famous. Yeah, but what yeah. do I know about? Yeah, yeah. yeah. but he only had like two lines in this, you yeah. know? And people like Kenny Baker and Anthony Daniels had only had, like, only Star Wars credits. I was looking up Anthony Daniels, and it's like Star Wars credits. Frank Oz is in everything, but was also really big as Yoda and doing a lot of R2-D2 work. 
So, so many people got their careers by being just out of film school. In fact, that's what the industrial light and magic start was, was, hey, let's get a bunch of people who don't know the way of the industry yet, because what they don't know isn't going to inform them about the rules they're about to break. Mm -hmm. And that is creativity. Mm -hmm. And innovation. And you do it with young people who haven't learned, you know, the correct way to do things yet. So we wanted to talk about some Easter eggs. I know you have one. I found an actual Easter egg. Mm-hmm. Like there are some things that I wrote down. I was like, look, even Peel is in the last parade scene behind mm-hmm. Mace Windu or whoever. Yeah, behind Yoda. Yoda. Yeah. Because he's a whole head taller than Yoda, but still only three and a half feet tall. Yeah. So he's less than one Liam Neeson arm for sure. <laughs> no, but my Easter egg, and I was so unbelievably excited about this. I was like, look at me leveraging my Clone Wars knowledge When Anakin meets Padme in the junk shop, you know, the infamous line, are you an angel? Oh, yeah. And mostly that line used to make me want to throw the tablecloth off of the table and all of my possessions out the window and shiver out of my skin and start a new life, right? It's a very smarmy pickup line, despite being from a nine-year-old. I hate that line. Mm -hmm. Hated that line. Past tense. Because... Anakin goes on to say, are you an angel? The deep space pilots talk about them. They're the most beautiful creatures in the galaxy. I hear they live on the moon of Iego. Which we've visited. And to me, in my brain, I said, wait a second. I've been to the moon of Iego. And then I said to myself, do I remember the blue shadow virus arc of season one of the Clone Wars? Yes, I do. (laughs) And then I went back to that episode And on the moon of Iego, as Anakin and Obi-Wan are trying to cure Ahsoka and Padme of the plague, they're trying to escape with this route that will cure them. Mm -hmm. Do you know who's on the moon of Iego saving their bacon? Those weird angels. Those weird angels. Yeah. How freaking cool. I love that, particularly because the idea of having the same blasphemes and curses in the Star Wars universe doesn't make nearly as much sense. Like you need your poodoos and your... Yeah, and your carabasts and things like that at Dank Ferrix. Yeah, but, yeah, um, yeah. But having uh, angels implies like a quasi-Judeo-Christian background. Which then, is very true. We have a chosen one who is immaculately conceived. We do, but then turning it into there are, in fact, angels on this planet. And they're like a, the ghosts of a dead species it's or whatever. It's a great subversion. I love it. I love that, too. That's just one of the many examples of the Clone Wars rehabilitating the prequel series. Yeah. I, I love in the Clone Wars how basically every Jedi on the council, every Jedi that we see, gets something. We see Eeth Koth. We see Adi Galia. We see Kiadi Mundi. We see even Peel. And we see Deepa Balaba, who we I've been talking about for like three episodes of The Clone Wars now, who we're going to see soon. So there's lots of cool stuff at that The Clone Wars and later on Bad Batch and Rebels are able to move forward from Phantom Menace. That is cool. And it is a good 
counter argument against Phantom being hollow, which is that if Phantom was so hollow, you would not have been able to tease out so many beautiful threads from it. Yeah. But there are enough beautiful threads there. You know what? That is actually Star Wars. Yeah. And we've talked about this at length of like, you know, we take Watto, we take Toydarians, yeah. and we make hey, we and King Katunko becomes a recurring character. And we love King Katunko. Yeah. He's got two votes on Baywatch and he's only been in two episodes. <laughs> Which is batting a thousand right there. <laughs> yeah. So it's really fun to have what George Lucas put in place, which is he's like, I have a team of artists, I have a team of directors and and tech people, and I'm just going to start spouting stuff and they're going to take notes and I'm going to speak it into being. He really does. And by throwing out so much stuff, that is what originally created the Star Wars Legends era and all the Star Wars Legends stuff. And to this day is now the Star Wars corpus of work, which is every single side character has a story somewhere. And Mm -hmm. In a way, that's really inspiring because you are a character. You are a side character. You in are an story. avatar in your own life. Yeah. That's all you are. Yeah. So live the life you want to live. Exactly. And maybe someday someone will write a cool trilogy and with movie tie-in and comic book tie-in about you. Oh my God, I love that. <laughs> Is it time for Baywatch? Yeah, yeah. I think it's time for Baywatch. Yeah. It's time for Baywatch. Bay- it's time for Baywatch. Baywatch. So, who's on Baywatch for Phantom Menace part, I guess, three? Yeah. 2.1, 2.0? Rewatching the Phantom Menace. Well, Qui-Gon was my Bay twice Mm -hmm. the first time we watched Phantom Menace on the podcast. Which significantly put him up in the Baywatch rankings. It really did. He's still in the top 12. (laughs) So those two votes did some work. We have not successfully rehabilitated Qui-Gon for me in this episode. I'm going to keep thinking about it. There is a strong argument to be made for small Anakin. I'm reminded of like when we were doing season one of the Clone Wars, we're like, I'm never going to have I'm never going to make Anakin my bae. And then I'm like, wait, but he did actually risk his own life mm-hmm. to win Qui-Gon and the gang the parts they needed in the Boon to Eve classic. He did blow up the entire Trade Federation control ship and saved a lot of Gungan lives. Yeah. He did have a delightful mess around with R2. He did. He acquitted himself well. He refurbished C-3PO. He really did. He did some good stuff. It's, however, not Anakin. Is it? Padme? The obvious choice is Padme. Why did it take me so long to see it? (laughs) The guns she stashes in her throne literally saved Naboo. Yeah. Padme is fantastic. She does not take any of Qui-Gon's nonsense. The whole time she's masquerading as Padme the Handmaiden. Mm -hmm. Qui-Gon is saying these flippant things to her. Like, the queen trusts me. It's time for you to trust me, too. And she's like, you need to calm your man titties, my friend. (laughs) Which are over her head. I could not. Yeah, I could not think of a PG way to say that. And Sam, we were reading that official souvenir magazine that you brought back from Mm -hmm. the cafe, from the bookstore. And they describe Padme in that magazine as a pacifist. Mm. And I thought to myself, 
That is a fundamental misreading of Padme's character. She is the opposite of a pacifist. She is a warrior queen. In the scene where she storms the throne room, she has a special blaster that makes a special sound. Mm -hmm. She gets half the kills. Wow. (laughs) At least. Because you hear like, pew, pew, pew. Pew, 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 and hers going off is the bow. And wow. it's like every time, bow, you see a droid fall over. And she's not just a warrior queen. She's a negotiator. She unites the Gungans and the Nabubians, mm-hmm. the Nabujoisie, for the first time in their history. Yeah. She listens to Jar Jar on Coruscant. She understands how to get the Gungans on her side. She humbles herself to Boss Nass, kneels in the swamp. Mm-hmm. And asks him to fight with the Naboo as equals. He's like, that's all I've wanted to hear from you guys forever. Of course I'll sacrifice for you. Of yeah. course I'll fight these invaders off with you. Her battle plan is so complicated. Not to mention that when she comes up with this battle plan, she says, all right, Boss Nass, I want you to put together a distraction for us for a set peace battle and he's like done peace out girl scout i got well, this boss Nass is then like hey jar jar how would you like to be a general and then jar jar you know passes out relatable jar jar mm-hmm. is the audience stand-in and then the ship situation he's uh she's like well i trust rick Olay. i trust the pilots to do their best and that's where qui-gon's like you're gonna have trouble with that bit but She's like, joke's on you. Everything went off flawlessly. Well, joke's on him because the only thing that needs to work is her capturing the Viceroy. Yes, that is true. Which she put herself in charge of. She was the tip of the spear. Yes. She was like, I'm not going to do anything that I would not ask someone else to do. Yeah. I'm going to do the thing. And then she did the thing and she was so great. Yes. It's Padme Amidala. She's my bae. Boom. Who's your bae? Also Padme. Yes! Incredible! Yeah, yeah. This watch through, watching for the interesting back and forth between Padme and the Handmaidens, watching for how much she cared and doing the right thing, as well as being action Padme, like OG action Padme. Oh, yeah. Is really fun. On my my first watch through of this, I, I called out a few other different people for Baywatch, but I do feel like... You made Captain Panaka one of your I did because he was great and he's still great and he gives good advice. He is great. And I was watching that scene where they're flying back to Naboo and Qui-Gon's like, this is not going to work out. And Captain Panaka's like, this is not going to work out. Like, how are we going to go back to battle? And Padme was holding it close. She said, I'm not nearly as worried as you are because... I know that I can unite with the Gungans. She is able to bring to bear her skills as a diplomat. Yeah. And so, as I said earlier, when I was quoting Bismarck, war is an extension of diplomacy by other means. She's like, bring it back to diplomacy. If we need to make war, we need to prepare for diplomacy. And that's what she did. I love being able to see from this, you know, perfect knowledge standpoint, all of the gears spinning in her head as she's staring out the window on Coruscant and Jar Jar is talking about this ancestral divide between their peoples. And she doesn't even acknowledge it, right? And you're like, okay, whatever. She's not listening. And then you get back to Naboo and you see the fruition of her plans and you're like, you are great. Yep. She's great. I love this. Yeah. Pad Bay, Pad Bay, Pad (laughs) Bay. (laughs) 
So continuing on our prequel tour. Rewatch. We're going back to watch Attack of the Clones next week. Oh, I'm so excited. Me too. Back to Camino. And then we're going to crack into some movies that we haven't seen in a while with Revenge of the Sith. Yeah. It'll be my second time ever watching Revenge of the Sith. And this will be your third time watching Attack of the Clones. Yeah. This, I should say, will be my first time probably watching Revenge of the Sith without falling asleep. So that is also a big benchmark for me. Well, now you're excited for it. Yeah. Now we've become close fans of Star Wars. Close watchers. We will watch your career with great interest. (laughs) Oh, that's so sinister. (laughs) If you want more Skywalker, you can follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also become one of our patrons. We post bonus content every Thursday, and monthly memberships start at $3 a month. And send this to someone who hasn't pod raced in a long time. And they want to get back in the saddle. Back in the saddle. Almost time for the Boon to Eve Classic. Man, I am going to go and play some Pod Racer. <laughs> that sounds great. I love this for you. And we'll see you next Tuesday. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.